What happens when God dies? His heart crafted by him, for him, is broken with sorrow to the point of death. Blood, no longer flowing to maintain his own life, spilled out, offered for our cleansing. His heart, the heart of all creation's origin, trips one last time, no more to be heard. Creation felt it while humanity cheered, glad to be rid of the one who would save. The earth groaned and shook, tearing at the seams. The sun turned its back on the ghastly scene as the one who formed it gave his life. Three days, God was dead. Three days, the earth wrapped itself around his lifeless body, entombed at the hands of his creation. Three days, the father mourned after the children of men murdered their only hope. What happens when God dies? Soon after moving into a new home with her family in Colorado, four-year-old Sydney decided that the new house, it needed to pass one additional inspection for monsters. So as any four-year-old would do, uh, little Sydney invited a local police officer to offer his professional opinion on the matter. Well, little Sydney met Officer Bonday and asked him if he would come search for monsters in our house. It was pretty cute. Little Sydney had just checked under the couch, uh, but the police officer, wanting to calm her mind, wanting to make sure that there weren't any other monsters hiding, he even checked under the cushions. Well, once the sofa was declared cleared of monsters, Sydney and the police officer went to the front yard to make sure there was no monster activity in the front yard. Sydney's mom said this. It's just amazing the confidence he's given her. She wants to grow up and be a cop and help other people find monsters as well. After the thorough inspection of the new home, neither Sydney nor the police officer had, discovers, had discovered any trace of monster activity around the home. Now, when we are young, our monsters hide at the back of our closets. They hide under our beds. But as we mature, our monsters become concrete, uh, real, as our monsters put on other people's faces. A bully at school, uh, maybe a callous brother or sister, a coworker who has it out for us. Though not truly monsters, a monster really does exist that we are all fearful of, death. Today, we hear a lot of people being infected with COVID, and yet every person, every person is infected with the death that Adam and Eve brought into the world. Now, often when we read the story of Adam and Eve, we believe it shows how sin entered the world. But what's interesting about the text, Genesis chapter 3, 
is the fact that sin is never mentioned. Now, we can point to where sin occurred at the tree that Eve ate from. But sin is never named. But do you know what is named? Death. The word die is mentioned three times in Genesis chapter 2 through 3. In fact, remember what God tells Adam after Adam is created in Genesis chapter 2, 15 to 17? It says this, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly, what? Have sinned? No, the text says, you will certainly die. You see, when Eve eats the fruit, she takes in, she ingests death that changes all of creation instantly. Where God had filled creation with life, in the eating of the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve invited the power of death into God's good creation. Death was never a part of God's divine plan. Death is what Adam and Eve united with in their disobedience to God. Um, think of it this way. Before eating the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve were so united with God that God walked with them in the Garden of Eden. But after, after humanity turned on God and united themselves with death, death began to spread throughout creation like an aggressive cancer. In fact, we can actually see the spread of death in the narrative of Genesis chapter 4 through chapter 11. Think of this, the first child of Adam and Eve, Cain, what does he become? A murderer, one who brings death in Genesis 4. Also in chapter 4, Lamech brags about the revenge killing of a man, Genesis 4, 23 and following. In Genesis 5, we read the family tree of Adam, and after each family member is listed, the text then tells the age at which they died. Eight times the word died is used in chapter 5. Humanity's union with death, death, flows further as violence and wickedness increases around the world until the world becomes so evil that all creation dies in a flood, except for Noah's family and the animals on the ark, Genesis 6 through 8. Death is the theme of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and God's word is showing us how death became a superpower in creation, a superpower so powerful. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 25, Paul says this about death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Because of death's great power, death is Satan's preferred weapon against humanity. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 to 15 says that Satan holds the power of death. Why? It says this, to hold humanity in slavery by their fear of death. Death is the monster we fear most. So who can defeat the superpower of death? 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy 
the devil's work. He's come for revenge on death. Smoke stings. Eyes burn. The eyes that burn with love for the bride as the warring groom descends to hell to win the keys of death. The voice like thunder shakes the gates of Hades as the victorious king refuses to let his bride remain unavenged. Armed with nothing but love, his steps echo as he faces down the one who would forever enslave the wayward bride. The flaming arrows hurl themselves at the faithful lover as he stands his ground demanding her freedom. The accusing voice splits the air. She has failed you, leave her to me. What do you want with this unholy bride? With shining radiance that rivals the sun, the Lord of love has no biting reply, but firmly says once and for all. She is mine, and I will never let her go. Carolyn Ahrens, a writer for the magazine Christianity Today, She tells a missionary story of a snake and how it serves as an image of the defeat of the devil. So let me tell you the story. One day the missionary told about an enormous snake. In fact, this snake was so large, it was longer than a man. That snake slithered its way into the kitchen of the missionary's home. Terrified, The family ran outside, and they searched frantically for someone, anyone in the village, who might know what to do with a giant snake. Well, their next-door neighbor was a machete-wielding neighbor who came to their rescue. This man, with courage, with, with intentionality, he calmly marched into their house, and he decapitated the snake with one clean chop. And the neighbor reemerged triumphant, and he assured the missionaries that the reptile had been defeated. But there was a catch. The neighbor warned them about this. You see, it was going to take a while for the snake to realize it was dead. A snake's neurology, uh, their blood flow is made in such a way that it can take considerable time for it to stop moving, even after being decapitated. And so for the next several hours, can you imagine this? Next several hours, the missionary and his family were forced to wait outside while that decapitated snake thrashed about, smashing furniture, flailing against walls and windows, wreaking havoc until its body finally understood that it no longer had a head. Sweating in the heat, the family felt frustrated and a little sickened, but also grateful that the snake's rampage wouldn't last forever. And at some point, the missionary realized something. The missionary told his family and the other villagers, who were all gathered around the family by this time, he said this, do you see it? Satan is a lot like that big old snake. He's already been defeated. He just doesn't know it yet. 
In the meantime, Satan is going to do some damage. But never forget, never forget that he's a goner. I love that story. Because that is what Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Christ disarmed, disarmed rulers and authorities. You see, with Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus didn't just go to the underworld to attack Satan and his demons. Mm -mm. What happened on that day when Jesus was crucified, the war took place on the cross. That's where the battle was fought. That's where the battle was won. In Colossians 2, again, Paul tells us that sinners, now that's you and I, that's all of us, sinners have a legal debt that we are under. And what happened on the cross, Jesus took our debt, and the text says that he set this aside by nailing it to the cross, Colossians 2.14. And it's because of this, Colossians 2.16 tells us that no one can condemn us. No one can condemn us. This is how Jesus disarmed the powers. Jesus took away Satan's power to hold sinners to the dead of their sins, to the dead of their trespasses through death itself. And that is why Satan's most powerful tool today, today, is that of being an accuser. An accuser. One who complains that others have done wrong. You just look through Scripture, and he has done this from the beginning. Satan called into question Job's faithfulness to God by accusing God himself of playing favorites. Job chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. Uh, Satan stood ready he stood ready to accuse Joshua and Israel of being unfit to be God's servants. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we see how Satan, Satan makes accusations against all believers before God. It says he does this day and night. He's accusing the church constantly. The power of sin is the law, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. And Satan tries to use the demands of the law to destroy God's people. But Christ, oh, I love that phrase, but Christ. Because you know whenever you hear it, something good is about to happen. So let's say it again. Satan tries to use the demands of the law to destroy God's people. But Christ, he took law's curse on himself, Galatians 3.13, taking away, snatching from Satan the weapon that he uses to destroy disciples of Jesus with. By taking our sins on the cross, he has snatched the most powerful weapon that Satan has at his disposal right now, which is his false accusations. So Jesus disarmed Satan and triumphed over all the forces of evil in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Now understand Satan's defeat, Christian. 
You see, Satan hasn't yet been so destroyed. He hasn't yet been so defamed that he can't do battle against believers. But here's the truth. Satan cannot hurt us spiritually. He cannot bring a successful charge against us. I love Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and following. Listen to what it says. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then? Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Oh, I love verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? And then verse 37. Hold on. This is going to get exciting. Verse 37 says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, that neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, that not even the powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, church, we are now free to wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil, knowing that we will get victory. Now, while Satan and his minions rage, they can only express frustration that their fate is already sealed. You see, the cross, the cross made a spectacle of Satan. Satan had believed that he had defeated Jesus by death. Satan made his grandest boast that he killed Jesus on the cross. And yet God, God used death in the death of his son Jesus to bring the greatest victory. The cross crushed Satan's head for good. It lopped it off, if you will. His boasting became foolishness, and his glory became his shame, as the justification of all God's people now makes plain. So why does Satan hate Christians so much? Because every believer Every believer in Jesus Christ is a reminder of how Satan's best plan brought his own defeat through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And as the conquering king arose, our triumph in his hands, The devil felt his fatal blow. Hell's kingdom could not stand. For innocent blood had wet the ground. Pure was the heart crushed by sorrow and heaven's every demand for justice was satisfied by the spotless lamb. Blood for blood, blow for blow. 
God's Son was given for us. Now, we come to the Easter text. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. It's the story of the women arriving at the tomb of Jesus on that glorious Sunday morning. They arrive at the tomb expecting to see death's victory over Jesus, which is why they're carrying spices. They want to prepare the body for its final burial. But when they get to the tomb, the stone was rolled away. The women entered the tomb, and Luke says that they didn't find the Lord Jesus' body. Chapter 24, verse 3. And look how the absence of Jesus' body affected the women. In verse 4, Luke says, they were perplexed. That word perplexed is the idea of being disoriented. Uh, this is often the reaction of people when God does something amazing, when God does something that's beyond human comprehension. And that's what the women are experiencing. They are perplexed because here's the deal. Dead people don't just get up and walk out of a grave. What happened? Well, we know. I love this next part. Look at verses 20, uh, look at chapter 24 verses 4 to 7. It says this. While they were perplexed about this, behold, now that's a warning. Behold, something's going to happen. It says two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Let's stop here for just a moment. You look at these two men, they're angels. Now don't miss the fact that these dazzling angelic beings light up the darkness of the tomb. That's significant. They light up the darkness of the tomb. You see, in Luke, angels often serve as messengers of God. They explain the works of God when people are perplexed. For instance, when a dead body is not in the grave, it was placed in three days earlier. And look at the angels and their explanation in verses 5 to 7. It says, And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Since the women are terrified, wouldn't you expect the angels to say something like, Oh, it's okay. Do not be afraid. But instead of words of reassurance, the women receive words of rebuke. They should have known. In fact, look at verse 5 again. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Wait, what? What? The living one? Isn't that interesting? In Luke 23, verse 55, the women followed the dead body of Jesus to the tomb, to this very tomb, and they watched as the dead body of Jesus was placed in this tomb. And yet the angel says, the angel calls him the living one. Verse 6 says this, Remember how he spoke to you, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered, crucified, and the third day rise again. This rebuke turns the light on for the women. Because in verse 8, we are told that they then, here it is, remembered his words. 
They remembered that Jesus said he would rise on the third day. The women are so excited by this that they run to share the news with the other disciples. In fact, they share it repeatedly. Verse 10 says they kept telling. Uh, It's the idea of insisting. They insisted on the disciples that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So why, what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with Satan's use of death that makes us slaves of sin? What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with the monster that haunts all of us, death? Well, listen to Hebrews chapter 2, 14 to 15 again. It says this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same. Jesus put on our flesh. He put on our blood. And here's why. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Oh, here's another verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 25. It tells us that right now, this resurrected Jesus reigns in heaven and will eventually, here it is, hand over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority, all power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now catch this, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Here's the point. The resurrection is about Jesus setting humanity free from the dark powers of death and the devil. So how do you enter in to this victory that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You enter it the same way that Jesus did. We enter the resurrection through death. We enter the resurrection through death. Now, don't be afraid of that statement. You enter into the resurrected life through the death of Jesus. See, there's spiritual death and there's physical death. This this spiritual death, Romans 6, 3-11 explains it this way. How do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Listen to Paul. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united, did you catch that? If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in in the likeness of his resurrection Knowing this, that our old self, that part of ourselves that was united with death, our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free of sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. There's the good news. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, our union with death is destroyed when we enter union with Christ through baptism into Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Through baptism, the power of death is left behind, freeing believers to live in the life of Jesus. Isn't that good news? Those who have faith in Jesus and are united with Jesus in baptism have already defeated death. Here's my question. On this Easter morning, have you defeated death by giving your life to Jesus? If you want to know more about how to do that and the role that baptism plays in burying us with Christ so we can be raised again in Christ, please contact us. Contact us through connect.blenville at gmail.com. That's connect.blenville at gmail.com. Or in the comments section, just simply say, would somebody contact me? I want to know more about how I can have life in Jesus by winning and, and living out his victory over death. Happy Easter and God bless.